You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and joining me today is Dr. William Dooley from the University of Oklahoma Department of Surgery, the G. Rainey Williams Professor Chair in Surgical Breast Oncology from the University of Oklahoma Department of Surgery. Dr. Dooley, welcome to our program. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I understand that you are very passionate about breast cancer screening and that it's not the same as risk assessment. Can you tell us about that? Breast cancer screening is screening women who are asymptomatic and usually involves screening women who are low risk for breast cancer. When women are high risk for breast cancer, such as you have multiple family members who've had breast cancer or you've had a pre-malignant diagnosis or a proliferative diagnosis in the past, you really need more intense therapy directed at identifying breast cancer or its premalignant lesions earlier and doing something to decrease the chance that you will develop breast cancer later in life. Those women need risk assessment to both optimize their screening and to see if there's something we can do to decrease the chance of them developing breast cancer or at least delay the onset of breast cancer until later in life. Well, now let's turn our attention to the various screening procedures. Let's first start talking about the strengths and weaknesses of a physical exam. We really don't have a lot of very good data on physical exam. Physical exam is how we've diagnosed breast cancers for thousands of years and has been in common use taught at medical schools for about the last 150 to 200 years. We do know teaching physical exam to patients does not decrease deaths from breast cancer very much, but does lead to finding a lot of lumps that end up not being cancer. But how accurate we are with physical diagnosis as clinicians, uh, as physicians and um, nurse practitioners, etc., is little unclear. We can, on average, find a breast cancer about five millimeters smaller than when the patient would find it just in the shower. But that doesn't afford a tremendous benefit in improved survival. However, about 15 to 20 percent of breast cancers will only ever be felt and they will never really show up on imaging well. So it's still important to do. It's an important part of an exam. You cannot substitute mammography and other things for a physical exam. And we still often direct our attention on the basis of symptoms and physical exam findings. Well, you just mentioned mammography. Why don't we look at that? And from your perspective, what are the strengths and weaknesses of mammography? Mammography is one of the great successes in women's health. It is, however, not pap smear. It's not cervical pap smear. It has not found cancers tremendously early in virtually all women and has not revolutionized the care of breast cancer. It has decreased the deaths from breast cancer about one quarter, which means that three quarters of fatal breast cancers would still be fatal in spite of having a screening mammogram. So this is a glass a quarter full versus three quarters empty. (laughs) We can find some much earlier. Unfortunately, the cancers that we tend to find with mammography tend to be the slower-growing cancers that take longer to kill women. Fast-growing cancers are less likely to show up early, and cancers in young women are a little less likely to show up on a mammogram. So mammograms get progressively better as you get older, 
and they get better, they're better and better at finding the slower-growing cancers than the fast-growing cancers. Okay. So let's shift our attention now to the strengths and weaknesses of a breast ultrasound. Ultrasound is kind of like a super physical diagnosis because you use sonar, much like a ship sonar, mm-hmm. to do a physical exam of the breast. So you can feel smaller nodules or lumps than you could with physical exam alone. Or in an area where the breast is a little thicker, you may be able to see that something is much denser in the middle of it. Ultrasound in very experienced hands can be our most effective screening tool. Unfortunately, we are unable yet to train all people so that they can use ultrasound and get as good a results as the best ultrasonographers in the world. So we are still trying to improve the technology, automate ultrasound, get a more reproducible outcome. Ultrasound in general is very good at telling the difference between a cyst and a solid lump and can help to direct biopsies very, very easily. It can also help to direct surgery and cut down on the number of women that have to have mastectomy and can, in fact, have lumpectomy or breast conservation because you're able to define the margin of the lump better than you can with just feel alone. So we've discussed physical exam, mammography, and breast ultrasound. Let's turn our attention now to breast MRI. In your perspective, what are the strengths and weaknesses of a breast MRI? MRI has been notoriously poor in fatty tissue. That has always been a big challenge in breast. In the 1990s, we had very mixed information on MRI and breast. With the advent of an intravenous contrast dye called gadolinium and some highly specialized technical ways of mathematically subtracting some of the artifact of the fat, we could look at blood flow within the breast and detect any lesion that had increased blood flow. Well, if a woman is not lactating and not pregnant... Very few things have much blood flow in the breast, so anything that was a breast cancer that had increased blood flow was easy to detect with an MRI. Unfortunately, that catches the fast-growing tumors, but does not catch all the slow-growing tumors. The combination of mammography for slow-growing and MRI for fast-growing offered a great potential that together we would be really changing things a lot, and that was the hope of the early 2000s. Unfortunately, by the end of the 2000s, we've learned MRI has a role. It's very small. It is primarily a tool for women who are at very high risk and women who are test positive for BRCA1, one of the breast cancer genes. There, it reduces the deaths for breast cancer. In many other circumstances, it may find more lesions. It finds some that are breast cancer that are not found other ways, but it doesn't change survival from breast cancer. And it doesn't change whether a woman is able to have breast conservation or not. It can find things that scare surgeons and women from doing breast conservation, but in fact don't affect survival or recurrence at all. And how about breast-specific gamma imaging or BSGI? Breast-specific gamma imaging is uh, using some radioactive compounds conjugated onto things that target specific activity in the breast, activity of mitochondria, activity of particular genes in the breast. This has great potential. The dose level used right now is still fairly high and higher than your average mammogram 
and technology is improving to localize these, get a CRISPR picture, to own, lay it on top of both mammogram and MRI. So it's a technology and evolution. Certainly not ready for screening right now, but can be used in specialized circumstances. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and with me today is Dr. William Dooley from the University of Oklahoma. Well, thank you for reviewing the various screening procedures. I know that we can't really approach breast screening without thinking about the breast cancer risk factors. Can you share some of the breast cancer risk factors? The most prominent of the breast cancer risk factors are included in something we know as the Gale model or the modified Gale model. So for the average woman in the United States, it is age, race and ethnicity, age of menarche, or when your period started, the age of first childbirth, actually the number there that's included in the model is not actually the age of first childbirth, it's the separation between the age of menarche and the age of first childbirth. So if a woman has never had a child, that age number that would be put in there would be her current age minus the age of menarche. So nulliparity or no children has one of the highest risks for breast cancer. Family history, primarily first-degree family history, relatives, that's within one generation of you. So mother, father, sister, brother, daughter. And then the number of breast biopsies you've had, because if you've had lumpy and proliferative enough things to warrant a breast biopsy, even though the breast biopsy was normal, it does increase your risk for breast cancer. There's not something about the biopsy procedure. It's the needing a breast biopsy that actually caused the risk. And if any of those breast biopsies have had atypical or highly proliferative changes, that increases the risk for breast cancer. Before we wrap up, what procedures are available for catching breast cancer early on? Well, for the average woman, it's going to be mammography. Now, Screening mammography is only for women who are asymptomatic. And right now, the majority of recommendations would be for an American woman annual screening mammography starting at age 40 and continuing for as long as you have a life expectancy greater than three to five years. Certainly, if you're in a nursing home and you've had strokes and Alzheimer's and so forth, there's not going to be a survival benefit associated with mammography. The question as to when to stop is difficult and is going to be different in lots of different groups. Mammography has its biggest effect at preventing deaths from breast cancer between probably 50 and 65 to 70. Now, what do you do at other times? Any new symptom of the breast in any woman over age 30 in the United States needs a diagnostic mammography. That is a special mammogram and additional studies to figure out what's the cause of the symptom to make sure it's not an underlying breast cancer. Women who have some increased risk factor for breast cancer need to discuss risk assessment and risk reduction with their uh, primary care physician. There are increasingly a number of breast centers who specialize in risk reduction. We are learning a lot about how to use anti-estrogens and diet and lifestyle to reduce risk for future breast cancer. And these are important questions to ask your primary care provider. Any final thoughts? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to share with our listeners today? One of the interesting things that we don't have all the answers to right now is a relationship of vitamin D and breast cancer. 
this looks like it may be very, very profound. We've had for a number of years a disparity in the outcomes for African-American women versus Caucasian women in breast cancer. And we thought it was access to and utilization of screening. But in fact, the disparity is primarily in premenopausal African-American women having more aggressive and more rapidly growing forms of breast cancer. Those forms of breast cancer, as it turns out, have had, in some research recently, have had some correlation with very low vitamin D levels. When you have darker pigmented skin, it's hard to convert cholesterol in the skin into vitamin D unless you have prolonged exposure to certain wavelengths of light, which are much easier to get when you're close to the equator and much more difficult to get at higher latitudes. So it could be vitamin D deficiency that drives a lot of the disparities in breast cancer and particularly aggressive breast cancers in young black women. All right, Dr. Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. I am your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.